about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Galatians 4, starting at verse 8 and finishing at verse 20, and it can be found on 1153. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature were not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are returning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good and to be so always, and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Well, good evening. My name's Roger. I'm one of the ministers here. It's great to be with you here. And looking at this particular passage from Galatians, we're going to concentrate um, on Galatians 4, 8 to 11. And if you've been with us um, over the last few weeks, we've been working our way through Galatians. And Paul has had a particular concern as he writes to people um, in the Galatian church. He's concerned that there's some people who've come and spoken uh, into that church that are leading people astray. Uh, He's trying to say to them, look, you are no longer under the Mosaic covenant and law in the same way. You don't have to live as Jewish people. Uh, You are now being set free because you have the gospel of grace. And we see that right there in the beginning of of, um, Galatians when he says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And I think you should have inverted commas there, a different good news because it's not really good news. Now we're going to explore together what that looks like a little bit more from the passage that we're looking at this evening, but I want you to just notice something else just as an aside, just how much this impacts Paul. Paul has cared for this church and this impacts him deeply. I'm astonished how quickly you are deserting. He feels this personally as people turn away to this other gospel. And indeed, in the passage that we've just heard read, we hear that again. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts for you. And he's not trying to talk about his own efforts, really. He's he's actually just deeply concerned 
uh, for those who he's been ministering to, who he shared this good news with. And we see again in, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, My dear children, for whom I again in the pains of childbirth, which sounds a bit odd from Paul because he's a male and he probably never gave birth. No, he never gave birth. Um, it's a bit odd, but you, you get the metaphor, don't you? It's, it's, it's been a painful thing to see this church grow and his desire is to see Christ formed in them and now they're starting to embrace a different gospel. And he's perplexed. How come I've given you the gospel of grace and you've, you've taken a different route? And that, that's that tone of sadness and that tone of uh, great desire to see people grow in the gospel is actually something shared by many of your ministers here. Frequently when we see people, well not frequently, when we see people uh, embracing another gospel, it, it deeply affects us. We lose sleep over it. Uh, it sends us to prayer. And no doubt for some of you the same. Uh, if you have friends or family who start to embrace a different gospel, you, you just, a great sadness comes over you. A great sadness that someone would be embracing something that's not as free and beautiful as the gospel of grace. That's just an aside and to give you the tone of the passage we're speaking about this evening. Well, the passage we're speaking about talks about this problem of uh, a different kind of gospel. He begins in verse 8 of chapter 4 by saying this, Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Now he describes that a little bit further by saying, How is it then you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Now that idea of weak and miserable forces is a reference to an idea in Paul's day in ancient Greek which referred to the notion of elements of the material and visible world, things like fire and water and earth, and it described the idea that there were spiritual forces behind these things, gods behind these things, and these gods, through these elements, controlled people's lives. And so you had to go to the temple and appease these gods in order for your life to work out, in order for your life and family to be successful. And so you'd bring offerings to these gods in order to appease them, to somehow make sure that they would give you abundant grain or a good love, love life. Uh, you would try and appease these gods, and so in many ways you were slaves to them because they were your masters. You were slaves to them. What's a bit surprising about what Paul says here is he links it with the idea of people coming into their congregation and speaking about Jewish traditions and laws. He says this, Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons of the year. Now, of course, there were months and seasons of the year in terms of the pagan festivals that they had. But I think he's actually referring to what the false teachers have been saying to the people in Galatia. And the reason I think that is that throughout the whole book, we keep hearing about these people who are trying to preach a foreign gospel that draws them away from the gospel of grace 
to worshipping false gods, gods who actually bind them to slavery, such as being bound to the Old Testament law in a Jewish kind of way. Now, John Stott has a similar observation when he says this. How can a bondage to the law be called a bondage to evil spirits? It does, does, wow, that's a pretty big call. What Paul means is the devil took the good thing, the law, and twisted it to his own evil purpose in order to enslave men and women. So the gods that they were worshipping beforehand enslaved them, and the way that they were treating God was enslaving them. And the similarity is this. In both cases, they were trying to appease God. They were trying to get God to like them and give them a good life. Or another way to put it, in both cases, they were self-salvation projects. They were trying to earn their own salvation. With the gods, who were the gods of the river and the fire, they were trying to earn their salvation by saying, you look after us if we do the right thing by you. With the God that they'd been introduced to by Paul, they were also trying to earn the right before God and therefore trying to appease God. It was their own self-salvation project. And that's why I think Paul is comparing the two, quite surprisingly, because people are going about trying to appease God in order to get him to like them. Now, it's worth thinking about that and worth thinking about how that affects us and the way we live and what we do and our world at the moment, because I think this is still true. Uh, we try to appease the gods, but in slightly different ways. To be honest with you, I haven't found a lot of people preaching in churches about the idea of going back to the Jewish law and obeying the Jewish law in particular ways. Um, although I must admit, I, after one service I can remember, uh, this guy came up to me, I didn't know him very well, and at the time I had an earring, okay? And uh, the guy came up to me and gave me this huge lecture about ministers should not wear earrings, and he kind of, you know used some obscure Old Testament text and told me all about earrings, etc., etc. And I'm, I'm kind of lost thinking, what? I don't understand what's going on here. I know that, you know, earrings look daggy on 55-year-old men, but, you know, this is a... What, what are you talking about? In the end, I, all I could come up with is, look, look, uh, look uh, in Jesus' day, slaves were, wore earrings. So, look, I'm a slave to Christ. It's the only thing I could think of saying. I mean, it just is like, what? What, are you, what law are you trying to put me under at this point? This is madness. Now, I'm not sure whether you've had lots of conversations like that. I'm not aware that you have, but maybe you have. Just saying. I think it is still true, though, that there are many, many people in our world who are committed to the elements of this material world who are subject to the forces of this world, who are subject to the miserable and weak forces. Now, we feel like that that's not the case because we live in a very secular part of Sydney and we're not used to thinking this way. But just recently I was in Thailand and I couldn't help but notice that the whole of life is subject to this self-salvation project in following the spiritual forces of this world. As I wandered the streets, on every street corner, 
there was a little place where an offering was made of food and joss sticks and for some reason red fanta. And it was just everywhere. It pervaded the whole of society. There are 66 million ties. And the absolute majority of them are living their lives in a self-salvation project to appease the gods. They want the gods to bless them. And so they provide offerings to them. They become enslaved to those elemental powers of this world. In some rural families, for example, what's true is that your oldest son needs to go off and become a monk. And when he becomes a monk, the longer the better, the more the parents are insured of a good life after their death. There's this subject, there's this slavery to a mastery about these gods. And as I spoke with some of the missionaries there, they talked about, and I actually felt this myself, stepping off the plane and feeling this oppression, these spiritual forces at work enslaving people. It's just terrible. These people are on a self-salvation project, trying to win approval of the gods so that their lives might be better. It's just slavery. Now, as I thought about our world and the world that we live in, I think there's, there's some truth here as well for our project of self-slavery. Um, oh, sorry, a project of, what do we call it? Self-salvation project. I've been listening lately to a podcast called This Cultural Moment. It's a really interesting podcast. It has a lot to say about the Christian worldview and what's happening to it and the way things are changing in our society. These guys are extremely insightful. I particularly like Mark Sayers. He seems to have read every single book and he just has this deep knowledge of what's actually going on in our world and he's actually able to draw an arc in terms of what's taken place within history. And what he's saying, said, is actually makes a lot of sense. He talks about our current context as having a contour that's similar to the salvation history story that Christians are familiar with, but is actually saying something else and is a self-salvation project. And yet it looks so similar to what we're used to believing that it's easy for us as Christians to become enslaved to it, to somehow... Wit fall into the trap of trying to win our own salvation. Now, if you're familiar with the kind of broad view of the Christian narrative, it works like this. There's Eden and creation. Everything is perfect. Then there's the fall. Uh, we need rescue, and so that there's redemption. Then there's a sense of renewing, of becoming more like Christ day by day. And then there's the sense of a heaven and a new heaven and a new earth. What does that look like in our narrative? How does that work? Well, personally, it works like this. There was a time of innocence. There was a time of when I felt like I was no under, under no pressure. People hadn't labelled me. I hadn't been formed by the society around me. There was a time in which I was kind of free. 
Now, maybe that's a time in my childhood and I, I can look back to that and there was a sense in which maybe even our society was much freer than it used to be. But what's happened is something's happened to me and our society. People have labelled me in certain ways. Institutions have come and cramped my style. The church is a good candidate for this. I've experienced trauma. And so my life is not as it should be. And of course, I, I want to say there's a lot of truth in those things. There's a lot of insight uh, from that, of course. What do I need to be saved? What's the redemption? Well, I need to find my real self. I need to get under from the weight of those things that have formed me and shaped me. I need to get away from those things that have oppressed me and made me to be like this. I need to move beyond that and find my real self. And so the search begins. And can I tell you, over the last 30 years, I've seen many and talked with many people who are searching for themselves. Sometimes it's in long walks and six months overseas and travelling just to get away from everything to try and find who the real me is. Sometimes it's the way they've gone into relationships. Sometimes it's the way they've gone into work. Trying to work out who they really are. And the renewal process becomes about putting aside those things which stop my happiness and pleasure, which stop me being the real me and stop me being happy Now, of course, there's real pressure in the midst of that. I've got to look like I'm happy and look like I'm having uh, uh, lots of pleasure. So I make sure that my Facebook shots or my Instagram shots are beautiful. And when I'm travelling overseas, I make sure I've got all the right places and the right people in it. And it looks fantastic because I'm being renewed. I, I'm finding myself and I'm important and, and I've got something to offer. And the kind of nirvana at this point is I find my true self. I be who I really want to be. I am free. The very sad thing about this narrative, and there are many truths in it, is it's just completely failing. And, and we know that it's failing because in our society and in individuals, anxiety is just rising. Rising. We live in a more anxious society than we've ever lived in for a long time. We have all the wealth and bounty beyond imagination for most peoples of this world. And yet the anxiety is palpable. And we feel like we've got to do something about this and people become more strident about these freedoms because actually we've got to find this, we've got to do this, we've got to allow people to do this because otherwise... We cannot be our true selves. I feel the tug of this. I don't know whether you feel the tug of it, but this is a very strong. But did you notice what it is? It's a self-salvation project. It's a project about me saving myself, about me finding myself, about me struggling against the powers and authority and putting them aside so that I am not formed by them anymore. It's about me. It's my salvation project. And yet that's not what Paul says here is the solution. 
And that's not what the Bible says is the solution in terms of salvation. He says the solution is completely different. Well, there's truths in here, we've noticed that. But the solution is completely different. Listen to what he says again. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves. And of course, this whole self-salvation thing is a slavery thing. You have to be slaves to finding yourself. Slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But then listen to the glimmer of hope that he gives. But now that you know God, and he then very quickly says, or are rather unknown by God. The starting point for the gospel is being known by God. And of course, you come to know God, but it's his reaching out to you. You don't save yourself. You can't save yourself. It's God who knows you. And last week, if you didn't hear Matt's sermon, go back and listen to it because he talks so beautifully about what it meant to be children of God. What it meant to be people who are children of God, to be known by God. So in uh, Galatians chapter 3, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And we talked about that notion of adoption. And if you think about that a little bit further, if a little child is adopted into a family, the child doesn't really know the parents very well. But the parents sure know the child and the parents lavish their love on that adopted child. And the parents set their affection on that adopted child. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about. You are known. God has set his affection on you. That's the starting point. Not your own self-salvation. That's just never going to work. I love the illustration in John chapter 10 of Jesus as the good shepherd. And of course, as we speak about shepherds and sheep, we're not talking about an Australian farm with huge amounts of sheep. We're talking about a shepherd that knows the names of the sheep that he's caring for, that knows them by name. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. We heard in Psalm 8 that beautiful picture of God's glorious majesty over all things. It's that God that knows us. That God who comes to us and rescues us and saves us and takes us to himself like a shepherd takes a sheep. And you notice the intimacy here of the knowing? This is not just a concept or an idea or a thought. This is a very intimate personal relationship. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me. Anything about the relationship between the father and the son? You couldn't get much more intimate than that. And being known by God is being known by a God who is in relationship. 
But did you notice what it cost for us to understand that? Did you notice the price that's been paid so that we might come to understand that we are known? God sends his son into this world so that we might know him. Know that we are known. And then his son lays down his life for his sheep. Because he wants us to know that we are known. It's just extraordinary how God lavished his love on us. And so the reality is there's no way we're going to know ourselves if we go on a great grand tour of self-discovery. What we understand in the Bible is that we are known because God, we know ourselves because God knows us. Being known by God means we come to understand who we actually are. And that's why he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Die to yourself and follow me. Now this, of course, has all kinds of beautiful implications for everyday life. This being idea of being known. I remember once talking to this person about uh, that moment after church. You know the moment after church where it gets awkward and it's kind of like, how am I going to have a conversation with the people around me? Uh, some people find this more difficult than others. And this person had come to see me and said, look, I find that really difficult. And in fact, I fail at it all the time, but I know I should be good at it. I know that I should be able to talk to people. I don't know what to do. I feel like a total failure. And then people say things and I feel like I'm not accepted and I feel like I'm being rejected and it's just, it's just horrible. I love coming to church, but I, I can't stand the after bit because I have to talk to people drives me mad. And so as we talked, it became evident that uh, one of the things for this person was that their father had rejected them all their lives. Uh, their father had died, basically saying, you haven't lived up to what I expected. In fact, really just saying, you don't actually have my approval. I had great expectations for you. I expected your life to be like this, but you just have not lived up to them. And so you can imagine that as he went into conversations with people, he was, do I have your approval? Do you like me? Do you care about me? Because I've been so rejected and hurt, I, I don't even know how to have this conversation. And so it was a beautiful moment to be able to turn to Galatians chapter 4 and to say, look, you are known. The God of the whole universe knows you by name. He knows your acceptance. He's lavished his love on you. He's poured out his grace on you. You are known and accepted by the God of the whole universe. Now, that didn't solve it all. There were still things to be done and still th ways to approach conversations, etc. But can you see how that perspective just completely changes the way you might approach that kind of conversation? 
being known by the shepherd, being secure in his love, having had his love lavished on you and letting that sink deep, gives you a very different perspective when you walk into that conversation, awkward conversation at the end of church. Because you are known. And so this evening I want to invite you to not get on board with the the project that kind of is about self-salvation. It just is a dead end. It's no gospel at all. It's no good news at all. But entrust yourself to the one who knows you and give your life to him and follow him. And in the process, you will discover who he's called you. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.